Hazrat Inayat Khan was a Sufi master and mystic and a distinguished musician in India who was sent out into the world to introduce the West to Sufism. His odyssey began in Russia, and he must have been exhilarated by his encounters with composer Alexander Skriabin and the opera basso Feodor Shalyapin. Once settled in Paris, his spiritual responsibilities began to eclipse his ability to devote time to music-making, to playing his favored instrument, the vina. And yet, Inayat was a wise man, and he understood, as he wrote, to serve God, one must sacrifice the dearest thing, and I had sacrificed my music, the dearest thing to me. While away from India, every soul had become a musical note to him. Now, perceiving all life as music, he said that if I do anything, it is to tune souls, to harmonize people instead of notes. And let's remember that phrase, if I do anything, it is to tune souls, to harmonize people instead of notes. Love and words were the only instruments Inayat needed. My heart, he said, turned into my vena, and there was no difference between his words and his music, since everything was music. Music was everything. Architecture is music, gardening is music, farming is music, painting is music, poetry is music. In all the occupations of life where beauty has been the inspiration, there is music. Through music, Inayat declared, the world was created. It is no wonder then that his young daughter, Noor, a musician herself in the traditions of the East and the West, who was raised by such a wise father, might write in her notebook, peace is harmony, peace is beauty, disharmony is illness, disharmony is the curse of life, harmony leads to perfection, harmony unites love and beauty, harmony attracts all human beings, nor wanted harmony. What is understandable, but so very unlikely, is that a young woman like Noor would actually determine to throw herself directly into the disharmony of the world of the time, into the chaos, violence, and strife of a world at war, to do what she could do to bring harmony, the harmony she longed for, especially to those who were suffering. And she did it by virtue of her intelligence, determination, faith, courage, and surprising skill, but also, as we'll learn, through her very presence, through the purity of her intention. It's almost as if Noor Inayat Khan became a tuning fork affecting anyone she met. was a member of a royal Indian family, a musician and poet, a Sufi mystic, 
and someone who believed that to act on one's values and convictions is essential in this life. This life matters. And with Noor, her very being and her doing were congruent in a rare way. So rare that many are surprised to learn that she was trained as a British spy in the wireless transmission of secret messages from Nazi-occupied France back to England. Even today, Noor seems to affect people who encounter her in a very powerful way. She entered Arthur Magida's life in a fortuitous way, and he was captivated by her essential beauty, the beauty of her character, and her very being. And he has written a book about Noor to introduce her to the rest of us who may not be aware of her rich and complex life. W.W. Norton has recently released Codename Madeleine, a Sufi spy in Nazi-occupied Paris, telling her story in a compelling way in order that she and her life may still resonate for us today, like this piece of music that she composed as a teen. Arthur Magida, author of the new book, codenamed Madeleine, grew up in Scranton, and he is a graduate of Scranton Central High School and Keystone College in La Plume. He has written six nonfiction books. He's been a visiting professor of journalism at Georgetown and a consultant to several PBS documentaries. We had a chance to speak by phone with Arthur Magida about codename Madeleine, and we spoke of her life in Paris before the family had to flee to England. It was a completely comprehensive life. There was music, there was poetry. She had, she had three siblings. The kids liked to play dress up and wear Indian garb, even though at that age they'd never been in India. Um, and yes, her father, when he came to the West, was one of the greatest proponents of Indian music, and he played the veena like nobody else did, either in the West or back in, in India. And nor played the veena, nor played piano, nor played harp, and she studied at the Sorbonne and also took private lessons with some of the finest music teachers in Paris. And, and on poetry, one of my interviews was with Noor's sister-in-law, Mary. She was married to Noor's brother, Volayat. And I asked her something which had stumped me from the very beginning of all this. I wanted to know how Noor was able to proceed from writing voluminously about fairies all the way up until her late 20s or so, and then go off and fight the Nazis. Making that transition just seemed completely incongruous to me. And Mary told me, as we're sitting in Noor's family's house in Saran, directly opposite Paris, Noor was able to do this, go from writing about fairies to fighting the Nazis, because Noor always believed in the unbelievable. And that, to me, is one of the great lessons for us from Noor, to always believe in the unbelievable, in what 
we can do if we put our minds to it, if we put our souls to it, if we decide to fully and irrevocably commit ourselves. And Nora did, and she never looked back. The music, the poetry, and all the rest, they were all part of her early family life in Paris, but the time came when the family had to flee, had to flee to England. Yeah, uh, June 1940, Nora and her brother had this essential conversation about what they would do. They knew they could not stay in France, but somehow they had to get over to England. Nora's brother had an MG. I like sports cars. I have one, in fact. Every MG I was aware of had two seats. I did a lot of research. For a few years, MGs were made with jump seats so they could handle four people. So Nor's brother, Valaya, drove this MG. Nor's mother, Aura, was in the front passenger seat. And Nor and her sister, Claire, were in the jump seat. So in my book, I say that the MG was a great car for a jolly picnic in the country, not for fleeing from the Nazis. An open-air sports car. MGs were made for rallies and for flirting with girls in Piccadilly or at Ascot. They weren't intended for joining a long line of refugees who were escaping to the coast while the Germans draped them from the air. Soon after leaving Seren, this town across from Paris, Noor's brother turned the car onto roads filled with broken-down cars and broken-down people. And with infantry men humiliated by their rout, and dead horses lying in ditches, and thousands of people on bicycles weaving in and out of the rabble, and farm wagons piled high with tables and chairs and suitcases, and a grandmother being pushed in a wheelbarrow. There was a man carrying a cat, a woman carrying a bird in a cage, mothers pushing babies and prams, children carrying toys, dolls, blankies. Cars overheated or crept along. The flood of humanity was too dense for the autos to move any faster. And everywhere, Mattresses were lashed to the tops of Reynolds and Citroëns and Mercedes. On the top of one car, the body of a grandmother who had died en route was tied to a mattress because her son could not bear to leave her alongside the road. The MG maneuvered around large stones that had been thrown on the road, fruitless attempts to block German tanks. Germans in Messerschmitt circled above, unsure whether to strafe the refugees or let them collapse in exhaustion. Leaving the MG in tours with a friend, the cons found seats on a train. The train, Nor wrote, was noisy and crowded with frantic young mothers with tear-stained eyes carrying their sleeping youngsters. They knew not where they were heading, Nor wrote. They were just running toward freedom if freedom was to be found. For the little ones, North continued, France should be saved from enemy hands at any price. I have wiped the eyes of some, given water to others. The distress of a human being is impressive, North concluded, but the distress of a whole nation 
those whose hearts have not beaten and suffered with this cannot know what it means. Now, I'm convinced, but have no proof, that sitting in the jump seat of that MG while passing thousands of refugees and looking them in the eye from that jump seat, one after another, and wiping the eyes of those children on the train, all that strengthened the pledge that Noor had made to herself and to one of her brothers. Somehow, she would return to France to fight the Germans, and indeed she did. In the book, Arthur, you give us a wonderful sense of the way she wound up with the SOE and her training to become a spy. And you won't be surprised that I was struck by the photo of the radio she was being prepared to operate. Well, actually, I think I got that photo from the Imperial War Museum in London. They have a couple of the actual radios there. Uh, I held it, and yes, it does weigh 30 pounds. How she was able to lug it throughout Paris for four months, I do not know. She was not given any bodybuilding skills or tactics before she was flown over to uh, to France. Uh, that by itself is a feat, despite, you know, on top of the feat of staying away from the Germans for four months. Carrying that radio was, was a chore and a task, and she never shirked it at all. What about the title, Arthur? Is this your name for the book, codename Madeleine? Sufi spy and occupied in Paris, exactly what she was, a Sufi spy. Her code name given to her by the SOE was Madeleine. That's how she signed her messages that went off to the U.K. They also gave her another name, uh, Jean-Marie Ranier. And that was the name that everybody in France knew her from the moment she landed June 43 to when she was arrested in October of that same year. When she would send messages to the SOE, she had a separate fake identity, and that was Madeleine. So, yeah, she, she was Madeleine. To some, she was Jean-Marie. To others, and to many who had no idea of either name, she was this elusive, fleeting presence who was for four months, one step, many steps ahead of the Germans. She saw the world shattering around her. She fled France for England, 1940, as the Germans were invading, her heart was broken. She and her brother knew what the Germans were doing to the Jews in Germany and in other countries that they conquered, and her heart was broken. She was flown back into France, 1943. Cells were shattering around her, courtesy of the Gestapo. Her heart was broken, and all along, the real was coming forth. And the real Fenor meant being brave and being courageous and doing the absolutely most unexpected thing she could have done. And that's why Noor, for me, represents going against the odds for what she thought was right. She could have stayed in England, didn't have to come back to France. She could have stayed in France. She would have been reasonably safe. But she and her brother wanted to go to England, hopefully to return and fight the Germans. 
she didn't do that. I have met people who were in the resistance who admired North specifically for that. They said she could have stayed in England. She came back and she joined us. But all along, she fought for what she thought was right. She fought for what I thought was right. And she defied the odds. And she knew, Arthur, in her heart of hearts, that she would go and make the sacrifice of her life. She was willing to do that. Did she expect that that was going to be asked of her to give her life for the cause? Early on, when she was recruited by the SOE, they leveled with her. Yeah. They said, the odds of you coming back are minuscule. And they told her, you know, most, most operators last six weeks in France. And the SOE knew at that point that a number of operators had been imprisoned. Very, very few, if any, I believe, had been killed at that point. Later on, many were. But yes, she was aware she would have to pay with her life. She was aware that the joy of sacrifice, which she had written about a few years earlier, would most likely be her fate. But that was fine with her. That was the real coming forth. And in my book also, in the same section, where I talk about the real coming forth. I talk about sacrificing yourself for someone you love and respect. Her father said, raises you higher than the standard of ordinary human beings. Those who do this, awakened souls, Norse father called them, view humanity without thinking they are German or English or French. They are equally dear to him or her. The awakened soul looks at all, full of forgiveness, to a soul which is wide awake. Judgment day does not come after death. For that soul, every day is a judgment day. Every day that Nora lived, I believe, she knew was a judgment day for her. And she sought out those judgments and she did her best to be judged well. And even the Germans, after catching her, had a deep respect for her. In one prison in Paris, where she stayed for about two months, she didn't tell the Germans anything. They respected that, even though it didn't help them in any manner. She tried to escape twice, the first time within two, three hours after she was caught. The second time, uh, about two months later. So they knew they had a woman of impeccable integrity on their hands and impeccable and unexpected and unlikely courage. And even after they sent her to this prison in Forsheim, Germany, and she was shackled in solitary for 10 months, the warden took pity on her. And he violated the orders he had received from the Gestapo to keep her in her cell, to not let anybody ever see her, to keep those chains on around the clock. He removed the chains. He let her into the courtyard. She was able to get a little bit of sun for a week or two. And then the Gestapo discovered that, and they ordered the warden to put her back where she belonged because she was a threat to the security of the Nazi regime. I know nobody who conducted herself like this during the Second World War. And Arthur, you used the word judgment and how she viewed that, but yet what is as incredible for us as readers is that you talk about her as refusing to judge others. 
and wanting mm-hmm. to forgive others, even the betrayers. Yes. Thank you for reminding me about that. Yes, probably September 43. This was maybe two months after she landed in France for the SOE. Other members of the resistance told her that a fellow resistant had betrayed her to the Germans. She should not have anything to do with this man. None of them should have anything to do with him. He was literally persona non grata, if not worse. And Nora repeatedly said, we must not judge him. She had been raised not to judge others. You could judge yourself. You could not judge anybody else. Others insisted she judge. She could not. She said, we don't know the full circumstances. Maybe the Germans are holding his wife hostage. Maybe the Germans are holding his son hostage. Until we know more, and we probably never will, we cannot judge, and even then we should not judge. So how she was able to do that in the middle of her tenure in France for the SOE, how she was able to maintain her fealty, her fidelity, to one of the teachings from her father, bear no malice against your worst enemy, completely staggers me. You know, so many of us think, ponder what we would have done during the Second World War. And many of us, the fallback position is maybe we would join the army. Maybe if we're in Europe, we would have resisted the Nazis in some manner. Well, nor did that. She did resist the Nazis. But along with that, she kept her faith. She kept herself. She bore no malice. And another teaching from her father, do not neglect those who depend upon you. Others were depending upon her. She was in great, great danger, and she never, never flagged her stamina, her courage, her decency, her yearning for freedom and um, wholeness for the entire continent of Europe. And even when she was released from the prison in Germany, Forsheim, and taken by train to Dachau in September 44, and killed with a bullet in her head the next day, I believe she was still defiant, and I believe she still was committed to this joy of sacrifice, to the joyful aspect of sacrifice, because her last word, as I said, was freedom or liberty. Somebody who is not defiant, somebody who is still fighting for humanity, would not have said that word. And her story and this conversation, I think, symbolize and embody the power of our lives and our missions should we choose to accept them. And we have a choice. We can accept, we can turn our backs on them. We can embrace the world, we can ignore the world. But I believe if we ignore it, we ignore it at our peril. Nor embraced it, she embraced it equally at her peril. She knew the sacrifice she would pay. She was willing to pay that because to her, it wasn't a sacrifice. To her, it was enormously joyful. To her, it's what it meant 
to be alive. In fact, I've had long conversations with a friend of mine, childhood friend who I met in fifth grade in Scranton and is now a child psychologist in Minneapolis. And many times he would tell me as I'm working on the book, this woman had a death wish. I said, no, 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 no. She had a life wish. What she did was intended to preserve and further life. My friend finally agrees with me, nor had a life wish. There are many key values you write about, Arthur. Liberté, freedom, of course, was central to Noor, to her very death. What else do you consider? One theme that was on my mind as I was writing the book was honor. I knew there was Sufi honor. They talk about honor a lot. And I was getting to the portion where Noah was being trained by the SOE in England. And they did, you know, one evening of mock torture by the Germans. And it was extraordinarily modest. Really didn't come close to what would happen to her. Basically, people just yelled at her and made threats against her. But the Germans, of course, had the potential to treat her much worse. They didn't. But in the book, I contrast Sufi honor and Gestapo honor. And I say the SOE definitely did not tell Norb <laughs> Gestapo's version of honor. Sufi honor rested on compassion, truth, courage, on appreciation, the sacredness of life. Anyone who didn't manifest these qualities, Norris' father said, lives, but his soul is in the grave. By Anayat standards, Gestapo agents were already in their graves. Their honor relied on power and strength and on their devotion to Hitler, who had announced a few years before that it was time to defend the strong against the weak, to stop all the crocodile tears for the poor and the humiliated. So the Nazis had their honor, nor had her honor. Nor's honor emanated from service and selflessness, and the Gestapo's so-called honor emanated from their loyalty to Hitler and from fear and from hate, barbarism, and atavism. These two visions had been colliding since Nord jumped out of a Lysander plane from England the previous June. So two entirely different worlds, worlds in collision. Nord's world, despite her death, has persisted on a good day and remains intact in good people and sparks the goodness out of us when we allow it to. Does Noor have a translation? Is there an English word that we might associate? Does Noor mean something to us? Yes, Noor means light. Light among women, light among nations. And she brought light into the world, into a very, very dark time in the world. <sighs> she brought a spark. In fact, talking about sparks, I was hoping to go to Dachau for the annual memorial service for Noor, September 13th. Because of the pandemic, because of Germany's regulations on traveling, because of America's regulations on getting out of here, I'm staying put. But if I had gone to Dachau, I would have given a talk in honor of Noor. And among other things, I would have said that there is a traditional 
Hasidic saying, Hasids are Jewish mystics, I would have been talking about, an Islamic mystic. The Hasidic saying is, if you want to find a spark, sift through the ashes. I've been to Dachau. I've seen the ashes. I've seen the crematorium, one of which Noor's body was thrown into. I know there is immense and eternal tragedy at Dachau. And still I know that if we sift through those ashes, mindfully, deliberately, we will find sparks. Nor was a spark in Europe, 1943-44. There are sparks at Dachau, and there are ashes at Dachau. And our task at Dachau or elsewhere is to seek those sparks because they will enlighten our lives and bring us toward the wholeness that Nor represents. Arthur Magida, author of the new book, Codename Madeleine, issued by W.W. W. Norton. Magida grew up in Scranton, and he is a graduate of Scranton Central High School and Keystone College in La Plume. We had a chance to speak with him by phone about Codename Madeleine and to find out more about Noor Enayat Khan and Codename Madeleine by Arthur Magida www.norton.com, Norton the publisher, and Arthur Magida is spelled M-A-G-I-D-A, M-A-G-I-D-A.